Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. 1 Peter 4, 12-19. It's found on page 835 of your Pew Bible. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not know and obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then... Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Thanks, Lori. Well, today is Halloween, and whether you uh, go out trick-or-treating or not, um, we hope that this is a day that you will take the opportunity to interact with your neighbors. It's not very often that you get to see that many people out and about in the neighborhood just wandering around in the evening. So I found to just sit on my front porch and talk to neighbors and people who are walking by. Um, It's a fun experience for us. I don't know if this is the same for you, but in our neighborhood, the street just behind us is always decked out with Halloween decorations. So they get a ton of kids over there and we get some of the overflow. So we had almost 150 kids last year stopping at our house. It's, it's a fun day. So anyways, I hope you take advantage of that opportunity to interact with some of your neighbors this evening as they're out and about. A news alert about a prison riot in your area is not the kind of news alert you want to see flashing across your phone. Finding out that a friend has been taken hostage in the riot would make things even worse. But that's where I found myself one day early in 2017 when I was serving at our church in Delaware. The riot had started mid-morning that day, but it took several hours for us to finally get word that um, one of our church members who worked at the prison was trapped inside. If you'd only just met Patty, you would wonder what on earth a sweet, nearly 70-year-old woman was doing in one of the most notoriously dangerous buildings in the prison. But after an evening of chatting with her over her husband Ralph's peach barbecue ribs on her back deck, surrounded by her potted herbs and plants, you would hardly be surprised. Patty has spent her life loving and advocating for people in some of life's hardest circumstances. She's worked in the public defender's office, juvenile corrections, treatment foster care, transitional living programs, substance abuse treatment programs, and in 2017, she was working at the James T. Vaughn Correctional Center in Smyrna, Delaware. Patty loved those inmates, and they loved her too. The two-story entryway to her house is lined from top to bottom with artwork that they created and gave to her. She prayed for them, believed in them, 
and poured her life into the work of restorative justice. While she worked at the prison, Patty created a faith-based mentorship program that she called My Brother's Keeper. And the program used mentors and education and substance abuse tr recovery treatment to help men gain the skills and values that they would need to flourish in life once they were released. And here's the most incredible part. My Brother's Keeper did not cost the state any additional funding and was statistically more effective at reducing recidivism, that is, the rate at which uh, inmates would end up back in prison after being released, than any other program. But the prison warden hated My Brother's Keeper. He wasn't happy that it was so effective at preventing inmates from returning to prison, and he wasn't happy that it was faith-based. Over time, he managed to get my brother's keeper shut down and accused Patty of all kinds of wrongdoing and impropriety, making her life miserable. But Patty was convinced that that prison and those inmates were God's assignment for her, and she wouldn't back down, even when the prison warden changed her assignment to the most dangerous building in the prison, which is where the riot eventually broke out. Patty was a hostage for nearly 24 hours. She saw and heard some awful things during those hours that the inmates were standing off with law enforcement. But God's hand on her life and her love for those inmates was on full display that day. A corrections officer who was also being held hostage was gruesomely killed in the riot that day. But there were inmates who knew of Patty's kindness, and they moved her away from the fray and out of harm's way. When they couldn't get her the Bible that she asked for, one of the inmates even sat with her and sang, with her through, sang to her throughout the night. Patty's story has been on my mind as I've been reflecting on our passage for this week, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19, because Patty's fiery ordeal, her suffering for her faith, was unjust. She hadn't done anything wrong, and yet Patty lived out Peter's instructions to the believers that he's addressing in this letter. As he puts it in these verses, Christians should respond to unjust suffering by committing themselves to their faithful creator and continuing to do good. Or, to put it a little more simply, when the going gets tough, believers keep going. Let's turn again to the verses that we read earlier. Peter writes in verses 12 through 13, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on, come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. In other words, the suffering we experience should not come as a surprise. When the going gets tough, believers keep going because we know that Jesus has suffered in every way that we have. You and I have several hundred years worth of distance from the time in which Peter was writing this letter. So it's not always easy to keep the context in mind. We've been talking about it throughout this series, but I thought it'd be helpful to revisit it again this morning. Remember, the believers Peter was writing to, scattered all across Asia Minor, were in the early days of Emperor Nero's persecution of Christians, and it was far from pretty. Under Nero's rule, Christians not only had their reputations dragged through the mud, but they faced incredible physical suffering. Some were sewn into animal skins and torn apart by wild dogs. Others were covered in tar, suspended on poles, and set afire as torches to light the streets at night. Still others were crucified, just like Jesus. I think Peter begins verse 12 by addressing his audience as dear friends because he knows that the message he's sharing here is deeply countercultural and even counterintuitive for human beings who instinctually want to avoid pain and suffering. 
It's as if Peter is coming in close and putting his arm around his readers and saying, hey, listen, look up here. Don't be surprised by suffering. You're in good company because the God you serve has suffered deeply too. Remember that the Peter writing this letter is the same Peter who witnessed Jesus' suffering with his own two eyes. Peter was there in the garden when Jesus was arrested. He was right there outside the door to the high priest's courtyard as Jesus was interrogated, mocked, spat on, and beaten. He bore witness to Jesus' nail-pierced hands and the wound on his side. And Peter had wanted to stop it all from happening in the first place. Peter was the one who, as Jesus was arrested, drew his sword and struck the high priest's servant, Malchus, cutting off his ear. And Jesus stopped him, saying, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think that I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Though it didn't make sense to Peter at the time, it's clear that in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, on the other side of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that Peter could finally see that the redemption of all humankind was only possible through Jesus' suffering. And though neither you nor I can bring about the salvation of the world through even the worst suffering that we could imagine enduring, there is redemptive value to our suffering too. Remember Peter's exhortation earlier in his letter in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the, pro- so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Paul says the same in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James echoes this in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 as well. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The consensus is clear. Suffering produces a fullness of faith, a persistence of perseverance, a Christ-likeness of character, and a wholeness of hope like no other experience can. We have the luxury of living in a time and place where our sufferings are rarely, if ever, as intense as those who first received Peter's letter. But unjust suffering can still come our way as believers, even here and now. You may have a boss or coworkers who belittle you for your beliefs. You may have a teacher who dismisses the Bible as a book of silly fairy tales. Or maybe you have family members who mock you for believing differently than they do and following in the ways of Jesus. Or maybe the things you suffer are simply the unjust results of living in a broken world, where the enemy continues to steal, kill, and destroy. Whatever unjust ways in which you suffer, past, present, or future, remember, our God understands our pain. And we can trust that he can redeem every ounce of suffering to bring purpose and even good out of it. And so, believers, keep going. 
Peter continues in verses 14 through 16. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. In other words, when the going gets tough, believers keep going because we bear the name of Jesus. Earlier this year, we released a podcast conversation that Pastor Corey had with John Kaloff and uh, Jed and Brent Hamoud on collectivism and individualism. It's, if you didn't catch it, it's worth scrolling back in the feed to listen to it for a number of reasons, but one part in particular kept coming to mind as I read these verses. It was either Jed or Brent who shared in that episode that when Brent was a kid, before he would leave the house in the morning, Jed would tell him as he went on his way, remember, you're a Hamoud. It was a daily reminder to Brent of who he was and the kind of person that someone who bears that name should be. And the same should be true of us. We bear the name of Jesus. So no matter what we face, that name Christian is a reminder of who we are and how we're called to be in this world. When you're standing among a group of people who are gossiping about a friend or a coworker, remember that you bear the name of Jesus. When your buttons are pushed and you're provoked to anger, like I was yesterday, <laughs> remember that you bear the name of Jesus. When you're pressured to take a shortcut or turn a blind eye to something that is clearly wrong, remember that you bear the name of Jesus. As we grow in relationship with Jesus and are increasingly transformed into his image and likeness, we will continue to bear fruit that is undeniable to the world around us. Peter gets at this when he talks in verse 14 about how the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That word rest is translated from the Greek anapao, and it carries the meaning not only of the spirit being evident in our lives, but the spirit bringing refreshment, quiet, and calm, patient expectation. In the midst of pain and suffering, that kind of demeanor is jarring. There's just something about a Christ follower that cannot be ignored. A few years ago, I was visiting a country where it was illegal for me to share my faith. Thankfully, I was not in any danger just for being a Christian, but if I had tried to tell people about Jesus, it would have gotten a little dicey. So I prayed before I went that Jesus would be seen through me, even if I never got to share about him with my words. While I was in this country, the friends I was visiting introduced me to a number of their local friends. And when we took an overnight trip to a coastal town not far away, one of these local friends met us there for dinner. She was from that area, and she wanted to show us the best that it had to offer. And I believe that she did, because the dinner we had that night was on a rooftop restaurant overlooking the sea, where we got to eat fish that had just been caught in the water in front of us with a spread of fruits and um, olives and breads and dips. It was, it was wonderful. The conversation was easy and free-flowing, but of course, never mentioned the name of Jesus. After I left, this local friend was reflecting on the time she and I had had together, and she told the friends that I'd been staying with, you know, I could see goodness in Abby's eyes. And I can tell you that that was not any goodness of my own, because all of the goodness that I can muster up in my flesh is pretty unremarkable. But the goodness of Jesus that we read about in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23, that's something that can stop you in your tracks and make you take notice. And it's that goodness, the goodness of Jesus, that I believe she was seeing in my eyes. 
The spirit of glory and of God rests on you, believers. And the world is going to take notice. One last thing before we move on. Peter reminds us again in verse 15 that this encouragement he's giving us applies to unjust suffering, not suffering that we deserve. You can't go out and murder someone and then claim that the lifetime sentence that you get in prison is mistreatment on account of your faith. You can't steal an expensive watch from a jewelry store and then complain that you are suffering for the cause of Christ when you're banned from entering the store again. You also can't be a busybody and stick your nose in someone else's business and cry persecution when you are cut out of relationship or a sphere of influence because you're no longer trusted. I think it's fascinating that Peter includes meddling in that list with murder and theft and all kinds of other criminal activity, but that's another topic for another day. When unjust suffering comes our way, we have reason to confidently rejoice because we bear the name of Jesus. And so, believers, keep going. Peter goes on to say in verses 17 through 19, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. God takes sin seriously. Judgment is not a casual matter for him, and as judge, he's not only the ultimate decision maker, but the one who sets the standard to which we're held. And those judgments have eternal ramifications. For those of us who have been dealt unjust judgments, that can be a little scary. When I was in high school, we read the book Night by Elie Wiesel, wherein Wiesel shares the account of his Holocaust experience in a Nazi concentration camp. His story is excruciating to read, the agony of losing family members, longing for food, and witnessing atrocities that we can only imagine. And after reading the book, we were assigned an essay topic that simply asked, do you think it's possible for Elie Wiesel to forgive the Nazis? Now, to be clear here, I don't think that we can give a flippant answer, because Wiesel lived through incredible suffering. But the question at hand was whether or not it was possible for him to forgive the Nazis. And given his Jewish heritage and what we see in the Old Testament books from which he would have been taught, I argued that it was possible, not easy, but possible for Wiesel to forgive the Nazis. And for that, I received a score of zero on my essay. My teacher hadn't found any grammatical or syntactical errors, not even a stray spelling mistake. The issue she had was the logical conclusion I had reached. In her comments, she wrote that it simply was not possible for someone who had endured the suffering of a Nazi concentration camp to ever forgive one of their tormentors. Now, I knew that the judgment I had received on that essay was unjust. The teacher's logical standard didn't have any rooting in the values of the Jewish or Christian faith when it comes to the areas of forgiveness. And I found myself vindicated a few years later when I talked to a college professor of mine who had been mentored by Elie Wiesel himself at Boston University, and he confirmed that Elie has forgiven many Nazis who came to him later in his life and asked for it. But this teacher was the ultimate decision maker in that particular uh, class, and I didn't have a recourse to receive a different judgment. That's a pretty benign example of injustice. I know there are people here in this room who have endured far worse judgments from an unjust judge. But my point is that when we experience um, 
things like this, with fallible human beings making unfair judgments, that can make us wary of God as judge. Can he really be trusted with the weight of our eternity? In her book, Holier Than Thou, Jackie Hill Perry follows a simple logical thread that I think is helpful here. If God really is holy, then he cannot sin. If God cannot sin, he cannot sin against me. And if he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? God can be trusted as our judge. Remember, Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Don't forget Psalm 9, verses 7 through 8, but the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. And so when the going gets tough, believers keep going because they trust God as their judge. God has a history of beginning judgment with his own people. We can see this in passages like Isaiah 10, 12, Jeremiah 25, 29, and Ezekiel 9, 6. But even though we will one day have to give an account for our lives, as believers, we have the assurance that Jesus has paid the price for our sin, and by his grace and mercy, we have been forgiven. Our eternity is secure. Because we have these assurances, Peter points out in these verses how much worse judgment will be for those who haven't declared with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. We believers have only escaped eternity apart from God because of the free gift of his grace. And without that, our sin would be just as insurmountable as everyone else's. With these verses, Peter is reminding his audience that our suffering as believers is only temporary. Even the worst of what we face is bearable when we know how it will end. As Jesus said to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2.10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Now, I want to be careful here, because even though I believe these truths, I don't want to dismiss the very real pain and suffering that we face in this world. As we talked about earlier, Peter's original audience faced unthinkable physical suffering, and to be sure, there are believers around the world today that also face intense physical suffering. For believers here in the United States, our suffering looks different, but it can be deeply painful too. My goal this morning isn't to dismiss that pain, but to help bring it into focus. When our eyes are fixed on our pain or even the, f- the fear of pain, it can feel all-encompassing. But when we set our eyes on our trustworthy God and the eternity that is set before us, we can take Peter's advice to commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. And so, believers, keep going. In the months that followed the prison riot in 2017, Patty kept going. She kept trusting her faithful creator and kept doing good. She testified in court following the riot and advocated for the inmates who had protected her from harm. And it's on the record that man who sang with what she called the voice of an angel throughout the night. The governor even came and sat on Patty's back deck and listened to her talk about My Brother's Keeper, the program that she had created, and the injustices that she had witnessed firsthand in the prison system. Patty wasn't able to return to her work at the James T. Vaughn Correctional Center, but she would be the first to tell you that God has redeemed that pain. 
She now works at Second Chances Farm, a commercial hydroponic indoor vertical farm that grows chemical and pesticide-free leafy greens, herbs, and microgreens. And their workforce is made up entirely of the formerly incarcerated. They exchange the label of inmate for agripreneur, as they put it, an agricultural entrepreneur. At Second Chances Farm, these inmates turned agripreneurs are provided with mentoring, life skills, and job training to help them flourish in life. Patty is still doing good and working for justice, just in a way she had never anticipated. I don't know what your suffering looks like or what it has looked like in the past or what it will look like in the future. I don't know if your suffering will be physical, emotional, relational, or otherwise. I don't know if your suffering will be for the unjust reason of your faith in Jesus or the unjust results of living in a broken world. But whatever it looks like, I urge you as Peter did, trust that God understands your pain and can redeem every ounce of unjust suffering to bring purpose and even good out of it. Trust in the name of Jesus that you bear and confidently rejoice in the face of hardship. Trust in God's justice and the promises he's given you as his child. Commit yourselves to your faithful creator and continue to do good. In some believers, keep going. I want to close the message this morning with a prayer as the worship team comes forward. It's one that was written by Henry Nowen, one of my favorite authors. And it's included in his book, A Cry for Mercy. I've adapted it a little bit to be able to use for corporate, uh, for corporate purposes this morning. Dear Lord, in the midst of much inner turmoil and restlessness, there is a consoling thought. Maybe you're working in a way that we cannot yet feel, experience, or understand. Our minds are not able to concentrate on you. Our hearts are not able to remain centered. And at times, it seems as if you are absent and have left us alone. But in faith, we cling to you. We believe that your spirit reaches deeper and further than our minds or hearts, and that profound mo movements are not the first to be noticed. Therefore, Lord, we promise we will not run away, not give up, not stop praying, even when it all seems useless, pointless, and a waste of time and effort. We want to let you know that we love you, even though we don't always feel loved by you and that we hope in you even though we often experience despair. Let this be a little dying we can do with you and for you as a way of experiencing some solidarity with the millions in this world who suffer far more than we do. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.